Everybody has their thing, and I have more than one thing that starts to bother me, but mannequins are starting to bother me a little bit. Not like, not like freaking me out, not like clowns or something like that, but they bother me because it seems like in culture today, they're doing a little bit more than just holding clothes. They're transmitting values. They're preaching something, I guess you can say. Back in the day when mannequins were developed, the whole novel idea was to hang clothes, to display clothes, like a big wooden hanger, basically. Now, I mean, go downtown, right? Go to the mall. Look at the mannequins in the window. They're not just holding clothes anymore. They're pushing product right off the shelf. And the way that they're doing that is they're communicating with the values that our culture holds in very high esteem. I know it sounds like a real dorky thing to talk about. I've actually thought about writing a big dorky article on it. But I mean, just to prove my point, raise your hand if you've seen the Under Armour mannequin, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go into any athletic store like a Dick's or an Academy or something like that, and you will see in the men's section this big imposing mannequin holding this compression gear off of his ripped muscular body, you know, putting shame to every man that walks beneath him. And every time I saw it, when I first saw it, I thought, no dude is cut like that. That whole thing is fake. It's fantasy. No one looks like that. The truth is, that was modeled after a really, it's a real person. A six foot four, 285 pound defensive end that used to play for Maryland, right, and maybe a smattering of NFL teams, was a friend of the Under Armour company. They modeled the mannequin after him. That's a real guy. (laughs) And every time I see that, I feel like I need to be in the gym. I feel like, what happened to me? (laughs) What's happened? I'm going to bang out some push ups right now. And then I'm going to buy that shirt, put it on, because I want to look like that. That Under Armour mannequin is working, it's selling products. I'd say probably two weeks ago, I returned from my family vacation with my wife and my kids and my mother-in-law, and on day one, we were in Charleston, staying in the fashion district in this little condo above this string of stores that were really nice stores, all high-end fashion. Day one, I walked by this window with a mannequin, right? And it kind of bothered me at first, because it was just, it looked like dude clothes on a feminine mannequin, right? And I kind of snickered when I saw the legs, little tiny Gilligan legs coming out of these shorts. And I thought, man, if I had legs like that, I would not be wearing those shorts. I just wouldn't. But then what really bothered me is I noticed that's not a guy. That's not even a guy mannequin wearing the clothes. That's a girl. That's a chick mannequin wearing those clothes. And it started cooking in my mind for a couple days. Well, maybe they're out of guy mannequins. It's a tough economy. Maybe... (laughs) Maybe they're trying to recycle their mannequins, but it's not. It's not. They were being very intentional with that. So on day three, whenever I saw it, I kind of freaked out a little bit. My kids were like, what's going on with him? And my wife was like, oh, he's back. But I was like, hey, everybody stop. Do y'all see this mannequin? Do do any of my friends stand like this? This, These are guy clothes. Do any of my friends stand like this? Hands on the hips. And it wasn't like this. This is like I just chopped down a tree, you know? Or I just changed my oil or hand me a hammer, something like that. It was, and I'm only doing this once. It was like, it was like this <laughs> with guy clothes on. And I really struggled with that. It bothered me. They were mixing the mannequins because in their eyes, the sex did not matter. Right? The clothes can be worn and should be worn by anyone who wants to wear them. I mean, culture, and I'll say this, 
to say the obvious, to say what we always say, culture is radically changing. We know that. But inside of the culture that's changing, on the forefront of that is gender roles. Gender roles. And you see it all the time in the news. Same-sex marriage. The Boy Scouts. Big time in the news right now. Gender deconditioning and reconditioning of children in the public schools. Right? I've read two articles in the last two months just on athletes becoming transgender, being in, some, being in the man's version of the sport, having a sex change, and going into the women's bracket. Two articles. We see it all the time. And if we're honest with ourselves as couples, if we're honest with ourselves as people, it is all too easy for us to take a cue and a page out of the culture's playbook whenever we define our own roles in our own marriages. We don't even see it a lot of times when we do this. So for many of you who hear my voice right now, whether you're in this room or whether you're listening online, many of you, you might have a marriage that looks like this bleached, neutral, asexual mannequin with no role, with no distinction, with no distinctive purpose apart from the one who is joined with you. You might look and be confused with things regarding submission, leadership, sacrifice, contribution. These might be things that you kind of grasp at and, and, and don't know who to give it to and what to take and how it should look. You, you, might, you might be borrowing your ideas from the culture. It's easy to do that. And the culture really has two different views, doesn't it? I mean, it's, now I'm going to speak in generalities, okay? And I'm going to talk about a spectrum, not the one I want you to zoom in on, Dave, but I'm going to talk about a spectrum. Our culture usually has two ideas and postures when it comes to gender roles. You have chauvinism and you have feminism, right? Now I'm going to speak in, again at the extreme point, feminism at its worst. And I know there might be some feminists in here, so listen, don't, don't bother, save your breath. I'm talking about feminism at its total worst. You've got men have screwed up the world. They have fouled everything up. They're messing up women. They're cavemen. They're not really doing a very good job, but women can fix it all. And then you've got chauvinism, which is a little bit of the flipped opposite, right? Where women can't fix anything except maybe dinner, right? And maybe make little babies and be arm candy. And that's about it because women, to a deep chauvinistic view, is kind of subhuman. They fit in somewhere underneath man. And I believe that this is pretty much where the world in general sees the church, if you were to go out and ask a young woman on the college campus today whether she felt like the church was more filled with feminism or chauvinism, they would say it's a chauvinistic ideal, church is. That's why I had Paula Lever Burke at home today, to prove to you that we're not chauvinistic. I'm totally joking. She doesn't have a burka. <laughs> that show got no laughs. I had to go, I have to let them know we don't have burkas. <laughs> So today I hope that as we go into the text, as we go into the text, I want you guys to see Jesus more clearly. And we say this every week. When we go into the text, I want you to see Christ more clearly. I want you to have a more vivid idea of what the gospel is. When you understand Jesus better, when you get your arms around the gospel, it redefines your marriage. It redefines your gender roles. It redefines who you see yourself as in God's eyes. And so as we go into Ephesians, I want that to work for you today. Even if you're single, watch this work for you today. Okay? So let's look at Ephesians 5.22. And I'm just going to start reading. Wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Now, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, I want to put another sentence in tandem with this passage. It's another verse in 1 Corinthians. That'll be on the screen too. And it says this, Paul, same man, different church. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, unlike feminism and unlike chauvinism, the Bible preaches a different view when it comes to gender. It's the highest ideal of chivalry, where man and woman are walking next to each other in equality, equal in worth, dignity, glory, weight. They're both in the image of God. Both equal, yet there is a distinction of role. There's a distinction of role. Now, in this view, women are not behind men by three steps. That would be chauvinism. They're not ahead of men. That would be feminism. But taken out of the rib, out of Adam's side, they're right next to man, walking alongside man, mutually submitting to each other, both of them. You know, before the fall, let's talk about before the fall. And when I say the fall, that's when mankind imploded after the very first sin that brought death and destruction into the human race. Before that happened, you had a real interesting and unique marriage with Adam and Eve. It was one without sin. They walked together, and it was beautiful, and it was harmonious, and it was loving. And Eve did not suffer from Adam's leadership. And Adam was not weak and passive, and he wasn't not masculine. And she was loving, and she was helping. But then there was sin. There was sin. And Adam stood by passively, weak. He was wimpy. He was the opposite of masculine, and he sat there silently, while the serpent came in to his bride and rearranged her theology. Then sin came. And that sin has messed up and monkeyed up how we look at gender roles ever since. That's why you struggle. That's why there's struggle. A lot of the the strife and the contention in your relationships are there because the gender roles are kind of loose and they don't fit quite right. Sin. Original sin. It started back then. So what I'd like to do is just look at this passage. It's worth looking at, and it's going to help us see Christ more clearly today. Look at Genesis 3. In verse 11, Genesis 3.11, we're going to look at the latter part of verse 11. 
This is God arriving right after the sin. The sin happened. God shows up. This is what he says. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And we spoke two weeks ago about what that looked like. We talked about that being a non-masculine man and how he did not take responsibility in that moment. But later on, a second Adam would come and take responsibility for much more. Right? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, which just means contention or hatred. I will put contention between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I don't know if you know this or not. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's worth chasing. That's what, that's what some theologians call the proto-evangelium. That just means first gospel. This is the very first time the gospel was ever preached in the Bible. The Eve would have seed in her. Eventually, a man would come from the line of Eve that would crush darkness and villainy and evil and hatred and strife, but it would bruise his heel, not killing him, because he would rise again as our king. It's the first gospel. Now, this is key in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Can I just explain something right here real quickly? It's not talking about, it's not just talking about the act of birthing. That's painful, right? I've watched it happen three times. It's painful. But it's also talking about the pain of bringing up kids, the toil and being a mother, the toil of homesteading. It's difficult, isn't it, moms? It's hard. There's toil. There's thorns. There's thistles. They whine. They cry. They don't obey. It's difficult to bring up kids. The same work through the thorns and the thistles that Adam would have as he would tend to the land in commerce and economy. It's the same thing. So think a little bit broader. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Now catch this. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband. He's not saying you're going to be hot for his bod when he's away at work and you just daydream about him until he gets home. That's not what he's talking about. This is what Wayne Grudem says on this passage. It's been a very big help for me. He says, after the fall, God says, I'm going to introduce conflict here as a punishment. The punishment is, Eve, you're going to resist that authority that Adam has. And Adam, you're going to rule over her by virtue of the fact that you are stronger. And there's the conflict for you, isn't it, folks? And there is the conflict. And you don't have to go to seminary to see this in action. Paradise was lost. Paradise was gone. Paradise is now replaced with wilderness, right? And a beautiful marriage is now going to be replaced with contention. And the trust that Eve had for Adam is now going to be confused with mistrust, And good leadership from Adam is now swapped out for oppression and tyranny and passivity. There we have it. There's an article written called What is Woman's Desire, written by someone called Susan Foe. And this is what Susan says, just in two sentences. She says this very well. The curse here describes the beginning of the battle of the sexes. After the fall, the husband no longer rules easily. He must fight for his headship. 
The woman's desire is to control her husband, and he must master her if he can. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. Sin broke it all. Sin broke it all. And I believe this is where most arguments and pain come from in Christian marriages. Most. I believe this. Maybe some of you can agree. Maybe some of you have had the fight where the man tries to assert headship incorrectly and the woman looks on and says, you're kidding, right? (laughs) You're kidding, right? You're talking to me about this? We see it all the time. I see it all the time as a pastor. Husband comes in, kicks the door in, lays it down, boom, this is what we're doing. I'm being ahead right now. I'm in charge. We're doing this. We're going this way. And you're going you're gonna to come along with me. And you're not going to ask any questions. And he's a total jerk. He's an oppressive tyrant. Or you get the opposite. And he just folds his hands and says, whatever you say, dear. If he says anything at all. Which is just as bad. And then it leaves the wife. And I totally understand this. It leaves the wife to look on and say, are you kidding me? I went to school. I'm pretty smart. He can't even read a book from cover to cover. He doesn't even use a napkin. He's laying the law. He's picking his nose right now as I'm talking to him. He doesn't have it together, but someone needs to get it together. We can't keep failing right here. This can cost us as a family. If he's not going to step up, I'm going to step up. Boom. I'm in charge. I get that. I mean, I really get that. I understand the struggle. I married a very bold woman. I chased after a very bold woman. I got what I wanted. But in the early couple years of our marriage, it would not be uncommon to hear the phrase in a fight said something like, I will follow you, Luke, whenever you're worth following. Whenever you lead well, Luke, I will follow you well, Luke. And that's, I wasn't a very good leader, man, I wasn't. In the early, I think the very first year of our marriage, before our first year anniversary, I felt God calling us to go to L.A., to move to L.A. from West Texas, which is like going from Earth to Mars, going to L.A. for seminary. And so I came home and I said, listen, God is calling us to go to school in L.A. For a, for a brief season, to learn how to be missionary to cities and to campuses. So we're going to go. <laughs> no, we're not. No, we're not. That's a bad idea. If you looked at the finances, we just bought this house, our first house. You want to move from this house? Yeah, and that's what we're going to do. So, pack your bags. No, no, I'm not packing my bags. You don't understand. We're not doing this. And it went back and forth and back and forth, and it got uglier and louder and louder and uglier. And then I did what every bad husband does. Get the Bible Open it up to Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to their husbands. Boom. Pack your bags. (laughs) We told this story in our missional community the other night. Paula said she cried every day for two weeks. (laughs) Bad. Because of sin, there is horrible leadership on the account of man. And then women, many times, can be very less than average when it comes to submitting and helping. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. You know, the last two weeks, like I insinuated earlier, and listen, if you're struggling with this service, and some of you might struggle with this sermon, and I understand, it'd be helpful for you to listen to maybe one of the two before this one. 
Two weeks ago, like I said, we talked about men being masculine and how being masculine has nothing to do with how much you can squat or how fast you can clean a gun, right? Or knowing all the facts about football has nothing to do with that, right? Responsibility, being able to take responsibility and being responsible is the very essence and definition of masculinity, right? Because we are a total mess and Jesus was masculine. He took a responsibility not for his mess but for yours and for mine. Very masculine. And then last week, Kevin did a brilliant job of painting a picture of what it looks like in the, in the trials for a woman as she submits and as she helps. And why that's hard. And all the failures that they see. Head, helper. Sacrificer, submitter. These are roles. These are roles that God has given us to keep us from looking like a neutral, nonsensical mannequin where whoever wants to wear the pants, just wear the pants, because after all, it doesn't even matter. I'll tell you, if that is the case, then there is no gospel picture. Our marriages, as we read in Ephesians 5, are to paint a picture of the profound mystery, which is the gospel. If you take sacrificer out of the marital picture, it mars the gospel. If you take submission out of the marital picture, it mars the gospel. If you take helper out, if you take covenant head out, it makes the gospel make no sense at all. If you took an eraser and made everything neutral, everything gender neutral, there's no headship because there's no submission, because there's no anything, there's no leadership, it's just a free-for-all, then the gospel stops making sense radically fast. It stops making sense. It's important that we have roles. But because of our sin, we distort these roles. And instead of having a functional marriage that points to Jesus, it ends up being a big shin-kicking contest where everybody's bloody and nobody wins. Right? So I put a scale together. He's going to go ahead and put the first one up. There you go. This is a scale. A lot of times this is a distraction. We're going to try to use it as a tool today. (laughs) Okay? There's a scale of behavior that we will fall somewhere on the line of. Hopefully this is helpful for you today. Many of us can be oppressive tyrannical, aggressive. And when a husband is on that side of the scale, when a husband is there, he ends up looking like a jerk, selfish, entitled, wants everyone to serve him, always barking and belching out commands, expecting everyone to toe the line, being abusive, and misunderstanding totally the masculine manhood that God has called him to. Some of you men are on that side of the scale. Happy Father's Day. Some of you men find yourself over there. But listen, a woman can be over there too. Now what does that look like? Well, that looks a little bit different. A wife who is towards this side of the scale ends up looking like a rebellious usurper. One who doesn't just contend for the leadership, but contends for that leadership, wants the leadership always questioning her husband's decisions, left and right, it doesn't matter, big or small, I'm not going to do it, I don't want to do it, you're wrong, you're wrong. That's what it looks like over there. Now, when these two people marry each other, well, just clear the room sometimes, you know? Maybe leave a window open on the way out for people to escape, to let fresh air in. I speak from experience. But then you have the other side of the scale, Not aggressiveness, but passivity. An abandoned call. 
A husband who acts on this side of the scale will come across very passive, very weak, very wimpy. He eludes all responsibility. We, we pretty much painted a picture of him two weeks ago. He's the guy that whines a lot. I don't want to discipline the kids. I don't want to deal with the hard neighbor. I don't want to deal with the, the heavy decisions. You do that. You do that. And it's always this wimpy, wimpy, wimpy thing. But did you know that women can be on that side of the scale too? This might shock some of you. This might shock some of you. What does that look like? The folding of the hands. Whatever you say, dear. Whatever you say. No conviction, no preferences, no dreams, no desires, no aims, no goals, no fire, no contribution, no investment, no help. And for a helpmate, that's very important. You see, some of you have grown up thinking that the Bible teaches you as a a woman that you just can't be quiet enough, that you just can't be passive enough. You can always be more passive. And sure, we can all grow in Christ. But did you know you were called to help? And we need your brilliance and your insight and your creativity and your drive. We need that as men. We need that as husbands. Your man needs your convictions and your dreams and your insight. Now, when two passive people marry each other, you end up with something really strange. You end up with hurt feelings that don't ever get addressed. They just get buried deep inside and grow tumors and years and years and years of silent treatment until one day someone cheats on the spouse or it blows up in this big aggressive manner. That's where we get passive aggressive. And that's what we see. But I mean, just think about this scale. This is where I think it's helpful for me. What happens when a tyrant man marries a doormat wife? What do you get? You get an abusive relationship. There could be sexual abuse, most likely emotional abuse, and I've seen it. I've looked in the eyes of women, and you can just see it. It tells me everything I need to know. They are browbeaten because they have a tyrant husband. They're never going to speak up. They're never going to help. They're never going to say, I've got to, what, what about this? What do you think about this? They're never going to do that. And what happens when you get a wimp guy married to a rebellious, usurping wife? You get a guy that follows six paces behind at all times. Whatever you say, dear. Not because he thinks it's a good idea, but because he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want the contention. He just wants to give away his responsibility. Now, past history, your past history and your personality, both nature and nurture, are going to dispose you towards one side of this scale. You're going to show up somewhere on that scale. So look at it, and look at your marriage. Look at yourself. Where do you fit? And after you answer that in your head, would your spouse agree? Would she agree? Would he agree? And what do you do? I mean, what's the plan? What is your plan? I mean, wives, are you just going to wait for your husband to get smarter? (laughs) Are you going to wait for him to get more masculine? Are you going to wait for him to get more Christ-like before you follow him in key areas? You better take a second look at Eve before you do that. You better take a second look at Eve. Men, are you just going to belch orders and bark at your wife until she does exactly what you want? Are you going to do that? Are you going to browbeat her? And then maybe, with all cowardice, hide behind a Bible verse. Is that something you're going to do? You better take a second look at Jesus. You better look at that cross before you do that.
Wives, are you going to hide behind the shadow of your man? Just hiding because you don't want to contend. You don't want tension. You've got something burning inside of you. You have something to say. You want to help with the decisions. You you, you think you're insightful on this beyond what he is, but you're just not going to say it because you don't want the rejection. Not again. Not again. You don't want to get yelled at again. I will tell you as a husband, speaking from husbands, it's no help. It's no help. Men, are you going to evacuate your calling of masculinity and manhood by giving away all of the responsibility to someone whose shoulders were not created by God to bear it? while she does the best she can to do an impersonation of you. You better take a look at a sacrificing king. You better take a look at a masculine Jesus before you do that. It's important. But what do we do? I say all this because this is the plan for some of you. This really is the plan for some of you. It's become the functional norm for how your gender role works in your marriage. Or maybe we just borrow culture. And we say, you know what, whoever's the loudest in the relationship or the smartest or got the brightest personality, they get to be leader and everyone else in the wagon just shuts up. That's what we see. So, I'd like to say there is an answer. And most of you already know what it is. It's what we always say is the answer. I believe the gospel is the answer for us in this. I believe the story of a victorious king A living, dying, and living again Savior is the answer for us here. Whenever you see this, especially through the eyes and the lens of the Trinity, it will start to correct your heart. Trinity. Some of you have heard that word your whole life and you're not quite sure what that is. Real quickly, in two sentences. The Trinity is one God, one God. Just as the Jews said in, I think, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one One God, eternally existing in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All with equivalent weight, glory, eternal being, right? Divinity, weight, value, honor. And no, I don't know how that works. It's a mystery. And I'm not embarrassed of the fact that it's a mystery. Listen, it's good for your theology if that's a mystery to you. It's good for your theology because if you could explain everything that composed God and you could define him and quantify him and squish him in a box, you've made him less than God. He's not God anymore because you're created and you can explain him. So if the mystery is confusing to you or it's a mystery to you, then you're probably in a good place theologically. Okay? Now, one thing we do understand about the Trinity, one thing that will help us when it comes to our marriage is that we, uh, we see a singular effort, a singular aim, and a singular direction in the Godhead. God is in agreement with himself. There's no contention. There's no person of the Trinity that is running a rogue operation. The Son is not in contention and always disagreeing with his Father. We don't see this. We don't see any plan Bs or selfish little motives or a little side project the Holy Spirit's got going on that's not a part of the big picture. We don't see that anywhere. And this is helpful for me in my marriage. In my marriage, it helps me because I see that my wife belongs with me. I keep pointing over here where she normally sits. I think she's back with the kitties. My wife is a part of my life. Oh, Oh my gosh. You usually sit right there. You're throwing me off. That is my beautiful bride. I'm sorry. That's awesome. Thank you. (laughs) We share our lives together, right? 
She has, we have a unified direction. A unified direction. We mutually submit to each other. I don't have some big plan of what Luke wants to do in Luke's life, and she's just arm candy or like a little postscript or some baggage in my big universal plan, and she's probably got her dream, but I don't really care what that is because this is my dream. It's a unified division it's a, or a unified effort. It's going in one singular aim. That's how it is for me and my bride. And yes, I often often defer. And that means to put down my own preferences. I often defer to my wife. I often, men hear me, I often defer to my wife because my wife has insight where I don't. My wife has brilliance where I don't. My wife has creativity and understanding where I don't. I defer to her. We have the same direction. And this is important, I think, for some of you. The reason I think it's important is because some of you don't sleep in different beds and you don't have different bedrooms. You don't have different accounts, no different TVs, but you have different lives. And your dream is different from your wife's or your husband's. And we see this typically, don't we? The men, they elevate their career and it's all about the career and that is their goal and that is their aim. And their wife, it's the homestead, the marriage, the kids. That becomes their, their goal, the thing that they married into. And the biggest fights are when those things slam into each other. Two different dreams. Two different unified things, but it's not really unified at all. So this helps me. Because in that model, there's no mutual submission. You know, the Trinity leads us here. The gospel. Let me just tell you how the gospel leads us here. It's very, very important. Because the gospel was always the plan. It's not some weird plan B that happened because they couldn't really work out man's sin. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? I don't know. We always have that cross option we can do. We always got that cave thing we can do if we have to pull it out. I mean, that is always there. That's not what happened. Listen, before God said, that was always the plan. Before God said, let there be light, he already had the cross in mind. The cross was a reality to him. The empty tomb was a reality. Before Jesus created the first molecules the gospel was going to be the plan for you and me. The cross, the empty tomb, a king coming back on a white horse was always the plan. Before the Holy Spirit hovered above the waters, the gospel was always the plan. There was never going to be a plan B. There doesn't have to be. And this is a good model for me and my bride because I don't have a separate equation I'm trying to figure out from her. We have a unified division, or <laughs> I keep saying that. We have a unified direction. We want to glorify God with our lives. And we're going to mutually submit so that as a unit, and as a married couple, that gets done. That gets done in everything. A bigger piece that we see in the Trinity, probably the one most familiar to you that helps in our marriage, is there was constant deference and respect of role. Deference, again, is laying down your preferences for the preferences of your spouse. Deference, respect of role, we see that. Jesus submitted to God on everything he did on earth. He's walking around, he's talking, he's doing, he's talking, he's doing. It's all submitted to God. All of it. But then the Holy Spirit came and led Jesus into the wilderness. Right after Jesus was baptized, out on the water, up out of the water, the Holy Spirit leads him straight into the wilderness. He followed and submitted to the Holy Spirit. And then later, God sent the Holy Spirit who submitted himself as a helper into mankind, to the, 
the, the application of salvation in mankind. We see this beautiful, agreeable, and choreographed dance, this lovely life in the Trinity. Think about that for a minute. You could read about this in Philippians 2. But Jesus deferred to God and submitted to God all at the same time, even though he was equal to God. He was equal to God, but he submitted. He was equal, but he had a different role. You know, indecisions, many times one of us has a better understanding of what's going on than the other. And that's good for us. We, me and my wife, we had a healthy talk about this last night. It was a financial talk. It was a big picture talk. A whiteboard talk, not so much a spreadsheet talk. But a whiteboard talk. And, and, and she was submitting that to me. This is what I think we need to do. This is my vote. This is what I think we need to do. What do you think? All I had, I, it didn't matter what I said. I could see it on her face. She was really going to submit to whatever I said. But do you know when it comes to the, the daily doling out of the, of the finances, I defer to her. She's better at it. I tried it. It lasted like what, like 3.2 days? Flushed our savings? I was miserable at it. I'm thinking jet skis, you know, on sale. She's like, electric bill. She did a better job. She took care of us. So if I'm at Walmart or wherever and I want to buy something and I call and say, hey, I can get this right? No. No, it's not looking good. That doesn't look like that's in our plan. Well, okay. Very seldom am I going to do something that she thinks is unwise because I'm going to defer to her. I'm going to defer. Why? Because she's wise and she loves God and she has the gift of God on her. She's a gifted woman who's, who, and, and some of you women are the same. That's why I'm saying it this way. You lean into the Holy Spirit. You listen to what God is saying. You trust God. You read, you study, you pray. And I need that. And your husband needs that. But the responsibility to make those decisions, it's going to rest on my shoulders. That's where the distinction of role comes in. The responsibility to make the decision rests on my shoulders. And there could be heavy discussion, and there will. And deeper consideration and mutual respect as we go back and forth. But ultimately, it's on me. Not because I'm smarter, because I'm not. It's because I'm husband. It's because I'm husband. It's my role. It's my responsibility. And this is healthy for our family, and it's good. And listen, it paints a beautiful gospel picture. One where a masculine covenant head, a sacrificial man, lays down his wife, submits his life to serving his wife, even to death, as she walks alongside, not behind and not in front, but right with the man, as she's a beautiful helper and a beautiful submitter, looking just like Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We malign the word submission in our culture. That's culture. God submitted through Jesus. God submits through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called in the New Testament a helper a few times. It's the Greek word paraclete. You'll see it. It's not a small thing. Not a small thing to be a helper. This is the biblical ideal. Men being humble and sacrificial as a head. Women being intelligent and joyful in their submission. And I'll just say this. 
as a side note on being intelligent. Ladies, intelligent means contributing your wisdom and your insight, as we've already said. We need that, don't we, as men? Ladies, don't we need that? I'm lucky if my socks match right now. You know what I'm saying? We need insight. I just don't see clearly sometimes. Ladies, we get in the weeds sometimes. It's a golfer term. I don't golf. I just know the term. Where you're so deep in the weeds, you lose perspective on the course. And we need insight. It's not a small thing to be a helper. It's a life-saving, radical thing to help in that moment. We need it. This is what it looked like before the fall. When they walked side by side, this is what it looked like. And listen closely, this is where God is driving it again. Kevin's going to talk about this next week, about how God drives this towards the same ideal of the pre-fall. How that works. That's what's waiting for us. And the gospel is what unlocks that for us. So the last several weeks, I try to program questions at the end of this service. I always do this at the end of sermons because I'm trying to provoke fights between you and your spouse. I want you talking about the deeper things and kind of getting rowdy with each other and then making out to the glory of God, right? So that's what I've wanted to do. And I've done the same thing today. I've got some questions for you, okay? Men, are you a brute or are you a wimp? Are you a brute or are you a wimp? And where does that show up? Where on that scale would you find yourself? And how does that look? Where is it that you look least like Jesus whenever there's contention like that? Where does that happen? Now, this is the trick about the question. I want your wife to answer it for you. I don't want you to answer it. I want your wife to answer where it is that you're a brute, where it is that you're too passive. I want your wife, I want your bride to dial that in for you. Because listen, you can say, man, whatever you want, whatever she says is going to, that's truth, man. She gets the vote. She gets the vote. You can't march into that and say, well, I think I'm right down the middle, actually. No. If she says, you're a brute, you're a total jerk, she gets the say. She gets the say. That's how that works. Wives, are you helping or are you trying to overthrow your husband? Are you contending with his decisions? And are you contending for his decisions? Or are you withholding your help altogether? Now here's the trick. I want your husband to answer that. I want your husband to define where he needs your help as a helpmate. I want your husband to define whether you slip on your bad days close to being a rebellious usurper or close to just a beaten woman who doesn't say anything. That's for you to answer, men. And then singles. If you're single in here, if you're listening to me and single, you will be on this spectrum somewhere, will you not? You're either going to be wimpy, you're going to be brutish, passive, or aggressive. You're going to fit somewhere. And don't fool yourself into thinking that if you marry someone at an equal part on the other side, it will balance out. <laughs> that equation never balances out. Sin, marrying sin, does not erase sin. It makes more sin. But it does tell you where you need to guard your heart. Let that guide you. You know, I'm finishing here in just a second. And we're about to be done. 
but as couples and as individuals, as we're about to go into worship, okay? And as Kevin already said, I heard him say, as we go into worship, there's going to be tables at the back for communion. Please take communion with your, with your spouse. I know that you're in missional communities and you got things like that going on. Today, I'd just love for you to take communion with your spouse, right? Pray a prayer that you will finish later on when no one's around. Pray a prayer that you can continue later on with your bride or with your husband when it's just the two of you. It's important. And what I want you guys to do is, where, what about God's relevant good news to you are you not believing that is causing you to slip to one side of the scale? A lot of times people that are brutish or oppressive, a lot of times what they're really grasping for is control and power. And they're not getting it. And so they get louder, and they get intense, and they get mean. Because their control is slipping away. It's slipping right through their fingers. And the, the very formal disbelief of the gospel in that, where you're really coming apart, is that God is not glorious enough for you, so you have to be glorious. Or God is not in control enough, so you have to gain all control from God. So you're placing yourself in Jesus' place. But some of you find yourself more passive, Some of you find yourself a little bit weaker. And you might not be believing the gospel because you don't want to be rejected. Not again. Not again. You are not satiated with how God sees you through the active work of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, you're trying to gain more image from everyone around you. And that means being liked. And that means not fighting. And that means no tension. And that means pleasing people. You should talk with your spouse about this later on today. Okay? Go ahead and stand with me. The good news for us, folks, is that God's blood was shed before all evil and villainy and creation and mankind to graft together a family, to call together a selected and called people who will persevere all the way to the end. And he laid his life down very low that you would be raised very high. And I will just say again, our marriages don't make a small difference. They are a large demonstration of the gospel in action. Some of you, you struggle with the gospel. Married or not, you struggle with the gospel. The gospel is where it comes apart. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. I don't get it. I don't want it. I don't like it. I don't understand it. And it's not a part of my life. Listen, after the service today, there'll be a couple of us just hanging around up here on the stage. Feel free to come by and talk. I'd love to explain it to you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. Some of you have banged around Southern culture and made your way in and out of a couple church camps here and there. And you have prayed a prayer. Some of you have come to the pulpit 92 times thinking maybe this time it will work, and never really quite getting the big deal about Jesus. I would really love to talk with you too.